Welcome to Ah Crap, a Hellboy podcast, the show dedicated to the half demon hero, hosted by me, Mark David Christensen, and me, Kate Thompson. And we have a very absolutely special guest for this episode. It's oh my god! It is the writer of Unknown Soldier. Harbinger, Goodnight Paradise, and the upcoming upcoming Odin's Eye, and also it is going to be upcutting, upcutting, upcoming. upcoming. <laughs> Thank you for calling yeah, me just, out. Yeah, <laughs> with its powerful <laughs> writing. Yes, very true. And then also, absolutely one of me and Kate's favorite storylines in yeah. all of the reading we have done thus far for our podcast in the Hellboy universe. Uh, BPRD's 1946, 1947, as well as, because I'm bad at remembering the titles of things, I got to look. <laughs> I uh, don't remember that. And what <laughs> shall I find there, as well as Bishop Olex Devil? It is yeah. Joshua Dysart. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love that. I want you to walk into every room before I walk into the room <laughs> and just do that. I could be there. Just trumpeting <laughs> and then yeah, announcing you. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Like, really, thank you so much yes. for being on the show, man. Like, it, when Dave, like, first sent me a screenshot of you, like, tweeting back to our Twitter account, I was like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe, like, tagging, like, adding these people actually works. It's crazy. Um, but, yeah, I was like, I was like, thank God we were like, you know, obviously we were really nice about it because we loved the story. It was so, so good. I was like, thank God we liked it. And at, like, I guess we, we wouldn't like it. You probably wouldn't have tagged no. me if you thought it was dog shit. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome, though. But I, yeah, I was blown away that you even responded, let alone joining us here. So yeah, just a big sincere thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure to be here. Honestly, cool. um, I you know I only started to listen to your podcast as a total ego stroke because you did <laughs> tag course. me. But honestly, I really love what you guys do here. It's awesome. You talk nice. about comics in a smart, funny, and kind way and i just um so it's it's my pleasure to be here awesome Uh, thanks yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, my my wife um i bother her every time that you would like send a comment or comment (laughs) and i'd be like look (laughs) and she's like i don't know who he is and i'm like you should care i have different interests (laughs) Interests. yeah (laughs) dave i I don't read comics (laughs) it's because when i hear your podcast i just start talking to you guys i'm like well the reason why we made that choice i realize you know I'm like walking down the street with headphones on or something. <laughs> I love so I'm that. Always, I'm trying not to just like live tweet at you while I'm listening. Hey, we'll take so it though. We'll, we'll take, take it. it. We'll definitely take it. And we it. have so many cool, we, you know, we, we don't, we aren't as good at researching as you are. As, no. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I, I mean, probably very few people are like, to be fair, I did prep a little bit for this by watching like, a bunch of and like listening to a bunch of like previous podcasts you've done and like oh wow. YouTube stuff. So like that sounds arduous. I'm so sorry. No, it was it's so it's it was really cool because it was like man, this guy puts in work before. Like I had <laughs> yeah. you know I had no idea about like you traveling to Uganda before writing Unknown Soldier. Like I I I mean you know I'm just like woefully unaware of like a big chunk of time in comics. Like uh, in comics, I just kind of like fell out of them for a minute. But like listening to those interviews, I was like even more jazzed on it. Uh, your 1946 stuff and Hellboy stuff is great. But, you know, like I picked up Goodnight 
uh, Paradise and read it like oh, right away. Dude, it was so good. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. it was great. Oh, great. Uh, like unsurprisingly, I was like, of course, this is great. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. We're going to like really uh, like gush over you and stuff. But yeah, I was just, it was great. It, uh, but yeah, your level of like commitment and research is super like super admirable to Oh, you know. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, I will say that you, uh, you guys, not doing that much research <laughs> is a huge. <laughs> it's a huge part of the charm of the show. <laughs> I think because it, it, it's just pure honesty. There's really something that can happen. I mean, you know, I mean, why? You know, why? Yeah. Why research? Really? So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a point. It's pretty much a. It's pretty much a recorded book club for us. Yeah. Most of the time, like we'll like. I'll read it. I'll read something once before we come on. And sometimes I'm rereading shit while we're recording. And <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I completely misunderstood that about this before. So, yeah. But that's just, it's just, it, I'm glad it creates it's authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> it's our genuine reaction to something. Yeah. True. You know that's that. what we are. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, speaking of not doing research, um, <laughs> I want to get right into your history with comic books. Like, Tell us a bit about Joshua, like how you were a fan, like if you when would you, did you start reading comic books and then that journey from like, I'm assuming a fan and then becoming a writer and getting into this and becoming one of our new favorite writers. <laughs> so. Awesome. Uh, well, it, you know, it only took uh, 50 years um, to become your favorite writer. But I uh, I mean, my very first comic was, and I think this explains a lot. I, I didn't realize this until a few years ago when I when this memory resurged. But um, after my my mom kicked my dad out of the house, uh, for which was the best choice, best parenting choice my mother ever made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, after after this toxic male was pushed out of the house, I became this latchkey kid. And because my mom was a single mom and so she would go to work and I would spend all day like snooping around the house, like a little, you know, prepubescent Josh, like cruising around the house. Uh, and, uh, and I found this huge stack of my dad's playboys Jackpot. under the kitchen sink. Yeah. Right at that time when that's like a huge yeah. thing, like, yeah. you know, um, and of course, my generation didn't have the internet. So like Playboy is like mind blowing. It's like gold. Yeah. You yeah it really yeah. is. It is. And um, but stuck in there was a reprint of R. Crumb's Zapped uh, comic, the under famous underground comic from the 60s. Yeah. And I recognized the art. He's the first artist and he's obviously problematic and i understand all that but this is just my experience and um i recognize the art because my mom had this huge album collection she's a very young mother you know and it was 197 it was like 77 or whatever and so she had this big brother in the holding company album um which is janice yeah. joplin's band yeah. and that's got all that crumb art and i had stared at that because it looks like it's a sequential comic but it yeah. makes no sense right, at it's all demented <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and i i think it really like upped my uh my appreciation for just nonsensical like craziness and and when i found that comic book i mean i i obviously stashed some of the playboys in my room but i also <laughs> stashed that comic book in my room so for me comics has always been kind of smeared in with sex and rock and roll and all you know especially as a young person yeah. like coming into all that stuff so i never as i started to explore comic books more and more um in the very first comic book store dedicated comic book store opened in my community i didn't as much 
gravitate towards the superhero stuff. I think because of that early experience, I thought comics was something that had to be like visceral yeah. and, and, and up in your face and like yeah. different and fresh. And so, you know, later on I, I'm of the generation that grew up reading, you know, Watchmen as it was coming out yeah. and waiting for that last Watchmen issue and being like, Oh, Moore's an asshole. Cause he won't, <laughs> he won't drop this late. Issue. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and I'm the generation who read dark Knight while it was dropping. And so I, I, it's not that I didn't love that superhero stuff, sure. but even that stuff is, is, outsider it was at that time felt like outsider art yeah so so that's how i came to comics i never really thought when i was young i would find kids who could draw and i would be like draw my comic and it would never happen (laughs) um and uh and i never really thought of it as a viable path and then um but i i was always writing i just was um i i just i don't it's i don't even know why or how or i just just was always doing it and um and then i met uh i worked at the houston international film festival in like i don't even remember i want to say 1991 or 92 or something and i met um a producer there named jan utstein and she had fallen in love with a comic book artist and which I don't recommend. No offense to any comic book artist. And she, uh, um, and she, and he wanted to make a comic book. And she said, "I know this writer that I really love." And she asked me to do it. And I got on the phone with him, and he pitched me his idea, which was Bat- Batman meets Silence of the Lambs yeah. was his pitch. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I was like, Ah, I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't know, man. Uh, and then, uh, and then I went to go live in Mexico for a year and kick around, and I became very politically like aware there because the uh, it was the middle of the Chiapas Revolution. I was there in '94 when the big political assassination happened that changed Mexican politics wow. forever. And and so I went to Chiapas, and that was my first time in a low impact guerrilla war zone, and really changed my whole value system and the way that I perceive uh, human value. Uh, and when I came back, I was so broke, yeah. and I had no nothing, and I called up. Jan and her husband Bill and I was like I love that idea yeah that's starting to sound a lot better (laughs) it's like a year later (laughs) uh, uh, so I wrote it and um you know and 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 that very first comic book the black and white version of um a book called Violent Messiahs that got optioned by Madonna's company at that time Maverick Entertainment and so I figured oh this is super easy like this is you just write a comic they make a movie out of it and so I took the option money and I moved to LA and uh, and I thought, well, I'll just keep writing comics. And, and then I and then I was just dead broke into yeah. just forever. Still, really. I, I was <laughs> I, I was listening to an interview that you had done where you s- described it. As, I mean, this was a few years ago. So the, you're, uh, you but I, you described being a, like high class homeless, basically. For yeah. Three or four years. <laughs> were, were you in Venice Beach at that time? Like, did that inspire some of what would later come into uh, Goodbye Paradise or? The the I was not Venice Beach is where I well I was sorry, good night Paris yeah. I'm sorry no oh, that's okay. okay I I um I moved into uh Venice Beach in 2001 and by that time I had been uh I had become a professional animal sitter yeah. in Los Angeles <laughs> yeah there's plenty of that work classic man. job in L A yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it is yeah exactly and that's so I didn't pay rent you know for um I I, I was mostly well entirely working for accountants for very large movie productions yeah. so like the first the first person i did i went and lived in their place while they were on location was um you know the lead accountant on the legend of bagger vance yeah. which is like a golf movie <laughs> yeah. in oh, yeah, Hawaii. Remember, yeah 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 <laughs> so i did all that kind of stuff and um 
And but around 2001, I was starting to just make barely enough money to pay rent. And that's when I moved into Venice Beach, because one of my very first nights in Los Angeles, I had gone to a party at this one uh, place right on the canals there in Venice. Uh, not the canals, I'm sorry, on the walk streets yeah. and um, fell in love with it because I grew up on a beach in Texas. And I just was like, oh, well, this is where you live on the beach. Yeah. And and uh, and then four years later, I that very apartment was like up for rent and I did all and I couldn't afford it. And I I like managed to get like this older friend of mine to go in with it, you know, who lived in Boston, but had to come to LA for, for work all the time. Hey, they got to have a place to stay when they're here. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. So I would sleep on the floor when he was in town. And (laughs) so I could live in this, this apartment. And, and then, yeah, so I, yeah. So to your question, I lived in Venice beach for 20 years and goodnight paradise is 100%. You know, uh, the only thing that's really kind of fictional about that story is that I took 20 years of experiences and stories and people that I've known and compressed it into a narrative, you know, um, but otherwise there's nothing in that. That's not true. Including, including the murder that instigates everything is based on a real murder that happened right behind my house. Yeah. And and that I'm convinced I heard her scream. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced in the middle of the night I heard her scream. You yeah. hear a lot of screams. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah but I was going to say, in like, uh, I'm in like the Hollywood area. So it's like sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to distinguish, like, you know, people are just yelling sometimes or. Yeah. And it'll be or the they, middle you of know, the night. Yeah. And, they'll, and there's a lot of mental illness, of course, sure. in that population. Right. So they're like having a, a legit existential crisis yeah. or something. For real. But uh, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But the but the but the scream of somebody, I think. Uh, being murdered is was a different that's haunting man i'm really sorry i mean i'm really sorry that happened yeah 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 yeah, me too especially you know especially for that that poor i mean like no yeah no life no chance to live yeah so and and so honestly and you know we i pitched goodnight paradise for 10 years and nobody wanted it i would get notes like um i would get notes like uh can 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 the homeless guy like uh have superpowers and and i that kind of negates the whole care like right the like dynamic of the character not having power in society like yes let me just cut that off entirely by giving him fucking superpowers (laughs) yeah that's exactly and that was the it's so fascinating that you mentioned that because like that was the note again and again. Like they, everybody wanted to empower Eddie. Yeah. And I was like, he has, he has no power right, in right. society at all. Like, um, so, and then finally, uh, TKO was very interested in it and they were interested in it my way. And, but even then when we wrote it, then the homeless situation, uh, in Los Angeles, even since we wrote that has yeah. uh, become apocalyptic yeah. and, and completely inhumane. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Oh. I mean, uh, and like I was gonna say for, I, yeah, I guess uh, when you originally wrote it, um, obviously like gentrification there has been a problem for a long, long time. Um, do you feel like it or was was there like a different level of like all those tech companies and stuff moving in? Yeah, you mentioned one in particular that's kind of like scribbled out in the. I don't know if you can like <laughs> say. It. Um, oh, I happily say. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Snapchat is moving into Venice and like fucking buying everything and like yes and breaking every zoning law you know this whole tech thing where it's like break break it first and then ask for permission later yeah or pay i know that seems and shit it's yeah it's such like um it's such a it's just such a bro culture thing to do like to like oh you know 
oh, these zoning laws don't mean anything. They don't, they don't serve a purpose, yeah. these community standards, you know, and, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, look, uh, it could be argued that I was part of a, 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 a small gentrification wave when I moved into Venice as well, you know, so I understand soft gentrification, slow gentrification, but the kind of thing that was happening in Venice Beach, once the huge tax credits to the tech companies went uh, in, uh, and where really the only other communities in the United States seeing anything like that was like San Francisco yeah. or New Orleans, you know, where they were having gross, uh, just heaving gentrification. And that is that when we started to write um, uh, Goodnight Paradise, that was just really happening. And in a really interesting way, if I had written Goodnight Paradise 10 years prior, it would have been an entirely different book with different concerns. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, you know, I mean, these projects happen kind of you know, I'm I'm not really a, a spiritual person, but these projects happen when when they're supposed to happen sure. in a strange way. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's great. great. <laughs> nice. That's great stuff. So then you're struggling in Venice, trying to make yeah. mean uh, ends meet. sleeping on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> what was the? I mean, before we get to Hellboy, the universe, and all that, what was? And I, sorry if I I'm not knowledgeable of it, but what 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 do you consider your first? book that really let you know like i'm gonna be okay in this business as a writer for comics i mean or is it just uh, still <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting <laughs> bring it on bring that book on um no i mean i think uh you know i was obviously tenacious and um uh but you know the the security levels in comics is a bit of a roller coaster so I thought because Violent Messiahs, once we did a color version with Tone Rodriguez as the artist and we published through Image, we were getting a lot of heat. You know, a lot of people were feeling that book and, you know, uh, people were calling uh, other publishers were calling me. And uh, I thought that that would be it. But then it was a very long slog appeal. I ended up working. I don't know if you guys remember Chaos Comics. I, that was my first paycheck. And you don't need uh, it's like it's like a, it's like TNA like uh like horror comics okay. you know cool. and, I, and i was hired to write you know uh, yeah uh, is it, you know comics like purgatory with an eye and bad kitty uh and i'm the father of two daughters so i, I was very uncomfortable but um <laughs> it, it was a real betrayal of my value system but i was sleeping on a, on you know floors sometimes and couches and yeah shit. like smut yeah. pays the rent i guess yeah it um, does and i love smut sure. like, i'm down yeah but you know i want it to be good smut. exactly but, yeah, um, some quality <laughs> yeah hot high-end smut That's i'm right. all about were you like had you been like writing movies or like shorts or something like how did you meet your friend who initially like uh got in touch with you about mm. writing violent missile like was that like how did she see I was, your writing before yeah. that yeah well i had um i hadn't really had i just was writing really for myself yeah. and uh and i was just working at the houston international film festival because i love movies yeah. and i wanted to like be close to them and and I and this was the closest film festival. So I went there. I just got a job, you know, an un, and I say working. I mean, it's like totally unpaid. Yeah. All I was doing was like driving talent around. And I had met Jan and, you know, we just kind of kicked it off and, cool. and had a good time. And, and she had asked to see my writing. And so we just stayed in touch as friends. Nice. So when yeah. So when it came time, you know, when she asked me to write that comic book, it was literally just 
she had read my stuff and was interested in it. Cool. And, um, yeah. And then there was another thing I wanted to ask you, because like you said at one point that you spent years and years writing shitty comics before you cracked <laughs> good comics. Oh but God. you have, yeah. but you at least admitted that you have written a good comic, you know, which is very good. I know it's hard to over, overcome being like humble. <laughs> yeah. Do you, what do you think you're like doing differently? Like, do you, what do you feel like you do differently now when you're writing as opposed to like when you started? Uh, well, okay. First of all, it's a matter of opportunity and people having faith in your voice sure. because sometimes you, you write things that you, and you know they're shitty while you're writing them. But I think that quote is probably more attached to things that I look back on and, you know, and not as in love with it. Okay. And, I, you know, this is going to be true of any creative in any or anybody really is that, you're, you know, you're going to evolve in your work. And um, but I guess if I had to answer that question, it's a really good question because it leaves me a little stumped. What is different? <laughs> I mean, I think I just. Through sheer doing the reps, yeah. just pushing the comic book, uh, the Sisyphean struggle of pushing the comic book like stone up that hill, yeah. I, I just have gotten better at knowing what I want to do, like getting my my sense of my voice on the page, um, understanding how the page works. Yeah. You know, there's there's so much about comics, as with any medium, that is so specific to that medium. And not being an artist... I think you you take a longer road to that understanding and and to keep everything tied into the theme of this podcast, you know, working with Mike Mignola was a huge step towards understanding comics. I was, you know, I was learning things on my own and everything, but um, I never had a teacher. I never had a mentor. I really learned from editors and from artists. And Mike was a really big teacher uh, in, in that regard. Cool. So I don't know specifically how to answer the question. It's just that uh, when you start to learn to juggle, you drop a lot of balls. Yeah. But after 20 years of juggling, <laughs> you can keep better. your balls in the air. Yeah. <laughs> that, that totally answers it. That's really helpful. It, That's all good. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, just the confidence of like have, having to worry less about like paying rent and being yeah. able like just being more stable and like more respected and known must be so helpful and being able to say no to projects sure. i love saying no yeah. <laughs> i used to say yes to everything yeah and, I, uh, and in fact i think maybe you don't have more hellboy comic books from me because my um because 1947 sort of happened at the same time that i was blowing up in a lot of other places yeah. and finally really starting to feel financial secure in fact 2007 is my best year ever so it was all downhill after that but like <laughs> financially but you know uh but it strained my relationship i maybe with mike i don't know mike's a pretty close guy we're perfectly fine sure. friend. i mean we're great friends and uh but it definitely strained my relationship with my editor scott alley sure but that um, there's a lot more there's a lot more to talk about there, yeah. which I'm happy to talk about. <laughs> oh, uh, great. We'll get to it. <laughs> I mean, that, all of that, that I think guy. is, yeah, it, it's all just interesting. <laughs> but backing up with your beginning of uh, with Mignola, before we get to like th those later days and why, you know, many of us were like, we wish there was more from you in the world of Hellboy. Oh, thanks. I, I, I remember reading about your first, I think it's in one of the afterwards or forwards from you about your first meeting with Mignola. And I, I absolutely loved it, the detail, because I was like, I think I've been in this pub 
that you guys met. <laughs> like, oh yeah, Santa in Santa, Santa, Monica. Santa Monica. Yeah, and I was that like, British pub. Yeah, yeah I was like, yeah. it's right on the like right there, like almost to the beach near the beach. And I was like, yeah, I've hung out. I think I've done darts there and drank with yes. friends <laughs> when I first came to to L.A. And I yeah. was like, because I have a friend also that I've done improv that lives out there, and I'm like, definitely. But I was oh, like, nice. I got super excited, like just going, I've been there where these two met for the first time, and Joshua was <laughs> the nervous. <historic> site. <laughs> yeah, to me. <laughs> The <laughs> yeah, I put up a plaque. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, so you can't hang that here. I remember reading um, that being like, that's close to where I park. If I, have park. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been there in a while, but that's so that's funny. That's really dude. funny. So I, I I mean I was just wanting to hear more from you about because I've read that experience, but for people that maybe have not read that forward, just those first moments of like when you get that call and when you're like this. As you stated earlier, like learning a lot from him, but those first moments of getting the call, meeting Mike and going, now I'm going to like partake in creating a big part of the Hellboy universe, like expanding on a a main character that's beloved. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, so the very first, you know, things are so much different now um, with the Internet and especially post, you know, post COVID, where proximal space relationships aren't quite as valuable as they used to be. But I owe my whole career to meeting people at conventions, particularly conventions that are small, underwhelming, where creators aren't getting barraged with fans and don't have much to do. They kind of have fuck all to do. And so (laughs) there was this convention in Dallas, Texas, and um, I had already uh had i i don't remember if i'd already done work for scott on conan the barbarian yet or not but um in dallas was a brand new wizard world con at that time and nobody showed up it was year one so all the all the creators went because we thought it was a new show and we could you know and here was an opportunity to, to you know to build up readership in this part of texas and then um we got there and nobody showed up at the show so it's just creators like doing nothing and i end up in the bar with mike mignola you know playing pool (laughs) so that's uh, i i know it's a different time now but if i can give advice to young creators and maybe this advice doesn't hold anymore but you know you you, i know it's expensive and it's difficult but you got to go to shows you know and you got to meet people and and you got to because we're a community I would say even more than we're an industry as marked by how many poor people make comics. So I'm not sure we're an industry at all, but we're definitely a community. So um, you should be a part of that community if you, if you want to, you know, if you want to make it. So that's how I first met Mike. And then, but I thought we were just shooting the shit and hanging out. And we had so much in common, you know, we loved all the same literature, all the same movies. Um, I was a huge Hellboy fan and uh, he didn't know who I was, but he, he, you know, he liked my, he liked my overall vibe, I guess. And, um, and so when I got that call, you know, uh, when there, when, when Scott was like, Hey, you gotta, I want you to go talk to Mike about maybe writing some Hellboy stuff. It was really exciting for me. And, and, and things were really happening to me that year. Um, uh, you know, um, there was, it would take many years to happen, but at that point I was talking to the musician, Neil Young about doing a graphic novel together. Um, uh, I was um, 
you know, uh, at Vertigo writing Swamp Thing at that time, uh, uh, which would th- become like a critical disaster and everybody would oh, pan it. Oh, and, I no. would, and I felt <laughs> awful. And like, I was like, oh my God, I, I, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> oh, no. but, but, at the, but I had gotten the Swamp Thing job and felt excited about it at the time. And then, um, so yeah, so I went to Mike's and as that thing, I believe that thing talks about that I was late and everything, yes. which is so and sw- fucking typical. And sweaty and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gross. Because I have never owned a car. So I'm just like rode my bike as fast as I could there. But I think what's funny, though, is the very first my very first pitch to Mike ever was that, you know, Hellboy is endemic of the Cold War and you've you've never ran straight at that. So let's run straight at that. And to this day, I still see Hellboy comics exploiting that. And I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Mike. wouldn't have come up with that on his own or if he hadn't already but i do know that i you know there was something there and i definitely saw and when i said that out loud i saw the light in mike's eyes and i was like i "I fucking nailed (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love that got him that's great yeah but but i'm like perpetually nervous terrified and um uh, (laughs) person so i also was you know <laughs> so maybe it's a bit of a lie to say that I felt really confident. Maybe I'm rewriting it. But I, I, I speaking to that, I love hearing that because I think it, it, the, your story of you recognizing that in a piece that another uh, creator has created and going, I see this and then acknowledging it and then it opens it up. It reminds me of like all the interviews with, with um, you know, rest in peace, Stan Lee of like when Grant Morrison and them and all these great writers talk about how they looked at the the X-Men and they're like, well, they stand for mm. these things in society. And Stanley's like, I didn't see it that way at all, but right. I uh-huh. love that's what you're going, where you're Stanley's going Stanley's like, it. if you fly, you I, should have wings. wings. Yeah. <laughs> but then they're like, well, that's the guy that, that stands for like homo- being a homosexual in America. And he's like, great. <laughs> like, go with it. And yeah. I think that's cool. And I think that is at that same thing. I think that's awesome that you saw this thing that, Maybe he saw it as this one thing of like, I just think it's cool to create this deep half demon hero. And you're like, well, I think it's this. And he's like, yeah, you're right. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to speak for Mike. Uh, and I, and I know that Mike's experience, he's of that generation. You know, his, his father was fought in world war two. I mean, we're all children of the 20th century. So that's in Mike, you know, one way or another, we all lived through the cold war and varying, you know, depending on where we were born and, and what the cold war looked like at that time. So it was definitely, I think in there yeah. and um, uh, even without me noticing it, but, I, but, but, you know, I consume a huge amount of like narrative art. I just do. And I think the most amazing thing about art is not what the human being who creates it achieves, although that's extraordinary, but it's what the human beings who, who, who it washes over, what it, you know, what they take from it. It's, it's just such a fascinating perpetuation of human ideas and morals and value systems and ethics and aesthetics that creates this endless conversation that with all these permutations. And I, I, I just think, you know, the artist's intention is only the beginning. It's sure. not, it's not the end at all. You know? Yeah. You can't so, control how like everybody else interprets it and everything. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It, that's kind of like the, their participation in your work, really, like that kind of thing. That's cool. That's great. 
I love that yeah. insight. Um, and you just want, you know, and you long as a, as a writer or an artist or what a photographer or an opera singer, you long to be a part of a conversation that includes all the people who are inside you because, you know, you consume their art and it meant something to you. And you long then to be, be part of, of that continuity. You know, that's that's the driver, I think. Yeah, that's so great. I love that. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's all I can say. Keep oh, saying I, I love it. Uh, yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're participating is what we're saying. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> also, what I'm saying. I, I saw like a clip where you were talking about how Mignola had like obviously like established broom way before you came on and everything. And but you mentioned that you kind of got to do a little like characterization kind of work with Vivara and that you had previously had like a girl character who had powers. And then you're kind of doing that, it seems, with Odin's eye, uh, too, a little bit, like from from the little I've seen of it. A little bit, can, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that, like about that character or if I guess like, yeah, if if that seeps into Odin's eye at all or, or anything? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that over the course of my work, you'll you see a lot of um, well, both just a lot of female characters but also younger girls and i think that's from being the father a very young father of a young girl so when i first created the character that would later i would co-opt to become vivara because i had not, never done anything with her it was long before i had written any comics or anything but i was the father of a of you know a, a four-year-old girl yeah and um uh and so all the beauty and all the weird shit that comes along with being a father i think of any child i don't i don't think it's gender specific that was just my experience yeah. but you know children are narcissists <laughs> children are children have no ethical <laughs> parameters yeah. you know they're just and testing been, every boundary at all times yeah, yeah absolutely and we have to civilize them that's like our job because they're animals you know and uh and so I think I've been always fascinated by that, you know, by like looking at my daughter and sometimes like I would see her get so mad yeah. at something and I'd be like, when is your empathy download? Like, <laughs> what is the empathy <laughs> update? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, um, and so Vivara, uh, in her previous incarnation very much came from that place. And then oh, I never did anything with it. And so, you know, uh, part of wanting to impress Mike at that first meeting and really wanting to dance for him was like, he said something like, oh, and I thought maybe it could be like a little demon girl could run the Russian equivalent of the BPRD. And I just gave it to, you know, I'm like yeah. right there. Cause uh, that way it makes you look, this is, you know, always be prepared to look like a genius in the room, right? Like, <laughs> like so that way it looks like I just came up with it on the fly. Yeah. And yeah. Like, oh, this is, this guy's an idea machine. <laughs> right. But of course it's just some character I've been dealing with for you know 10 years but I've never shied away from just giving I know a lot of creators are like I hold my ideas back and when I work for the company and I've never done that ideas are a dime a dozen they're worthless until you execute them uh, uh there's no such thing as an original concept there's like if we're being super kind there's maybe 99 ideas in the whole world maybe so I just gave you know we just took that character and made it Favara and I'm really proud of her I think she has a very unique voice totally. I think she's really exciting um I think Mike made her better uh but um but I do feel like she's you know, 
of everything that we did in the Hellboy universe, I think she's the most my thing that I gave to that universe. It's and, an awesome um, contribution. It's like such oh, a I feel fun good about character. And yeah, like, I love yeah. her. Yeah. yeah. And Broom, Mike had obviously established him and Mike had some strong ideas about him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that field was pretty wide open, too. Yeah. And making Broom uh making sure that Broom didn't feel stuffy, like Broom is a young man, an intellectual, an adventurer an occultist, like it was pretty, he he, pretty exciting. Like that's another thing I feel really good about is my characterization of Broom. You know, I really enjoy, I think that character is amazing, you know, interesting. Yeah, I think he like plays to his strengths a lot. Like he's not, he doesn't feel like he's just like some like Indiana Jones photocopy or something. Like it feels like he's using his strengths and his intellectualism and like, yeah, he does all of the homework that Hellboy never did, and he's able to, like, go into situations where Hellboy might, you know, go in and, like, try to talk it out first before punching, but ultimately have to end up punching something. <laughs> yeah. But, like, yeah. Broom doesn't have that power. He has to rely on himself. He's not invulnerable yeah. like Hellboy. Yeah. yeah. So I think that makes him, yeah. like, a really interesting character, and I think that that, that comes across a lot in 1946. Having to, like, remain calm in the presence of demons and vampires and you know all like heads and jars and stuff so yeah um, yeah yeah i think it's really really cool how it turned out i think that we you know between the very first short story that i wrote well i think the very first short story that i wrote was the pirate one uh with black yes yeah and and um which was a black and that's really i think what got mike like excited right about oh this is this is gonna work but the very first short story i did with broom you know was the was the one where he goes to find the painting where he's a really young person just kind of knocking around europe but he's like chase he's really chasing this kind of story that his uncle told him and in that one you know he is i really think we we did manage over the course of my time my work with him to create First of all, a young person who was excited and enthusiastic about being involved in the supernatural. And then by the time my I do my last story with him in 46, several years in his lifespan later, he the weight of what is really happening here has started to impact him. That he is he is, you know, he's commanding other people, he's sending them to their deaths. Yeah. And we never really say it out loud, but it's sort of like I feel like by the time we finish 47, there's the cranks are turning in his head that maybe I need more people like Hellboy and yeah. less people like these vulnerable human beings that I keep sending into the, the slaughter. Yeah, because even so as I think, soldiers, yeah. they're like everything that they're trained to rely on, they're facing oh, yeah. these like, <laughs> they're like ready. they're new kind. Of, yeah, like any kind of supernatural foe they're going to come up against, even if they've like survived, you know, D Day or or uh, like horrific war scenes and stuff. It's it's still they're still not prepared in the way that like, yeah it's out of their realm of understanding yeah. and you know it's 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 cosmologically something else entirely yeah. and I, I think you know that so i think we managed that i think we we took a totally you know, i think we yeah we arced broom so i feel good about yeah, it. yeah yeah I, I think you <laughs> completely managed it because i being completely honest like anytime like when you meet a character like like old like we meet broom and then he's dead and then we have to go yeah. and then we go on a long journey Anytime, like, you go back and have to, like, re-fit like fit that in, there's always a wariness, especially for me. Because mm-hmm. I we've seen it in other, like, I love movies, and I've seen plenty of movies that try to do that, and I'm like, they're winking at me. I think yeah. you 100%, like, I went into that going, not, like, prepared to dislike it, but just was 
blown away by everything you've touched on. I think oh, you've awesome. knocked it out of the park. It's made oh, me thank you so much. it's made me like Broom even more. For sure. Oh cool. Yeah. And, oh cool. And and given me a bigger insight into the main character I love, Hellboy. I'm being like, oh now yeah. I understand how he functions and why he functions yeah. due to these these nineteen forties. All the shit he does like because of Broom <laughs> and despite Broom. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like that it it yeah, I think it really informs Hellboy's character a lot too. So much. Like yeah. secondhand. And then Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. To even go a little further with Vivara, like we didn't none, neither me or Kate read any of the BPRDs before the podcast. I've read all the mm-hmm. Hellboy, but never touched the BPRDs. We had a guest come on a while ago, this guy, a uh, great guy named J- Justin Michael. And he was like, you guys haven't read that yet. And he was like, literally like hyping up Vivara. Oh, yes. awesome. Yeah. Here's the fun thing is sometimes you get a hype and then it doesn't meet that hype, right? <laughs> All the time. All the time. I'll tell you. From the We've first, already talked about disappointment. Yes, we talked about yeah. disappointment. But I'll tell you, there was hype involved for her. But from the first page where Vivarda is introduced, I was like, this is achieving the hype and going more. She is so, oh, made, awesome. she is so memorable from the first panel she's in that I was like, I cannot. I got giddy meeting her. I was like, I can't <laughs> awesome. wait for her. She's one of my absolute favorites. So awesome. You, I do feel like. Stuff. We, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. We do have to admit that, you know, a big part of this also is Mike directing you too, though. Yeah. You know, I would definitely want because I think. Um, I'm with you 100%, man. As far as like um, prequels and going back and fleshing out other characters, everybody always fucks that up, man. They uh-huh. always, you know, they 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 miss the intent of the original, or they're or or they just don't have the discipline as narrative creators to not step on some of the big beats that start, you know, from the original. Where they always screw it up somehow. Building out mythology is. Probably the worst thing you can do to a property, <laughs> and yet it's comics thrives yeah. on it. So it's very hard to do it right. And I do, you know, especially, you know, we can talk about how involved the mic is. I mean, forty six is is I feel very much mine. Forty seven is more hours and maybe even more mics. And there's reasons for that. But you know, Mike was always there to 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 rein you in to keep you like centered in his universe. And one of the reasons why I think again and again and again, the Hellboy universe expands without breaking is because Mike is still the, at, at the, the pinwheel at the center yeah. of that universe. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, you know, he, he was a big part of it. And, and I'll tell you my sensibilities, I grew up on gore. I mean, I love all this old horror stuff. So my sensibilities is for instance, in 46, a perfect example is Vivara came, comes out of the barn after speaking with, um, you know, the, the, the vampire mutant yeah. in the barn. And I have her like drenched in blood and like smile <laughs> because I grew up on Italian horror movies, yeah. you know? And, um, you go, Dario and Mike Argento. is like, okay. Yeah, totally, totally. And Fulce and all that. And Mike is like, no, 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 no. One hand, just a little bit of blood, just a hand covered in blood. Yeah. That is the sort of, it sounds so small and so minimal, but now think that every creative choice is me going, going at 11 and Mike being like, dial it down to eight, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, he, he gets a lot of credit for that. Cause he's, he's 99% of the time. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. It does need to be an eight. I mean, he just like does subtle shit so well too. Like, I feel like, it, you know, like just thinking of him, like 
I can imagine like a silhouette of a blood drop coming off of a hand or something. In yeah, like a the, single you know, teardrop of blood yeah, or something. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like evocative of this whole like other like yes. bunch of violence that we missed. But yes. like, that and totally makes sense for him to, to chime in like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a total Mignola note. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and you can see it in the art, right? His, his, his way of storytelling is also manifested in his visual art. Sure. I've seen, I've seen people bring their portfolios up to him at a show for him to look at. And he'll take a, and he has, to, I don't know if he does this anymore, but I've seen him take a piece of like a vellum, you know, the like see-through paper, yeah. put it on top of the, of the image and be like, you don't need this line. You don't need this line. Just crossing out lines. You don't need this line. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and so that also impacts his sense of narrative, his sense of structure. You don't need this story beat. You, this doesn't need to go so hard. He's just editing. Pull this back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Just like Amazing. saying more with less or something like that. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And like really getting to the heart of the thing and not convoluting it, not being didactic, not being preachy, you know. That's cool. That's great. I yeah. mean, it definitely shows in your two shorts in between the 46 and 47. Um, Bishop Olex Devil and uh, and what shall we find there? Like you, the limitation, like. Can you speak to that, like the challenge and the strengths of when it's you're the worst. when you're on the limitation of the pages? Because you're like, I just need more. <laughs> Sucks so bad. <laughs> well, you, I mean, those both those stories say so much, though, and the limitations of those pages. It's it's great. The horror element of Bishop's Olek. It's like one of the most creepily terrifying short stories to read. Yeah. It's great. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, you know, that's what I always wanted to. Mike and I had a lot of similar interests. But I really feel like, you know, look, Hellboy, it, it is a horror comic, but it's not really. It's like an adventure comic yeah. or like a supernatural. And I really wanted to be like, okay, well, my contribution will be, uh, I like every story I tell, whether it's a superhero story or it's about the homeless population of Venice, or it's always a horror story. Everything I do yeah. is horror. <laughs> so, um, because I just have so little faith in the human animals. So, <laughs> so, you know, that was what I really wanted to do. And Mike and I really share love for like M.R. James and a lot of these like classic early horror writers from, you know, from the 20th, early 20th century and also the 19th century. And that's what I wanted to do. I think both of those stories are are just very indicative of me reading a lot of late 19th century horror writers. And and that's what I wanted to bring to it, you know. And and Mike who is um a genius at spotting artists, you know, knew what kind of artists we needed to make that happen. But as far as the page count, man, an 8-pager is such a pain in the ass. <laughs> like you 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 have to you want to tell as complete a story as you would in a single issue, you know, with 22 or, or if I have my druthers, 32 pages, but they give you eight and you just flog yourself. You're just constantly like, yeah. like cutting shit that you think is amazing. And it's probably not, it's probably better as an eight pager, but, uh, it's, it's a pain in my ass. I have five, eight pages I have to write right now for my current publisher. And I just want to stab myself. Wow. Do you do you find yourself like do you like write long and then just chop it all down? Oh my god. That's so my process is I hesitate to say it out loud in for fear that younger creators will mimic it because it is not the path or the way. But you know how like a you know how like a sculptor has to drag in like this huge 
ugly piece of granite into their studio and then they have to like stare at it and wonder where the shapes are and like that's how i write and it's a nightmare (laughs) yeah exactly so i start with um i basically my first what i call my vomit pass i just kind of freeform write yeah um for a long time (laughs) and i produce a huge messy document Are you like in like a word document? Like you're just like, Mm -hmm. okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes if I get stuck, I will go to writing by hand, but writing by hand is my, I I reserve that for when I'm, when I'm, you know, when I'm experiencing some kind of writer's block or something. That's how I, that's how I crack that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is cool because you can't, you know, if you free stop, I mean, free form and by free form, I mean, write without stopping. So if, so if I'm writing by hand, I'll write without stopping for three or four pages and then I'll tell myself where. So there's a lot, you know. 20% 20% of that is like, I'm writing words. That's like what I'm sure, writing. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I just have to fill these pages. This sucks. I hate this gig. Uh, <laughs> but you only need like 20% of that vomit pass to be meaningful. Cool. And that's really what I'm looking for in the very beginning. So I'm looking for the hook, the fresh bit, the thing that I have not seen anyone else do yet, or that at least very least I like, or just something yeah. that I dig. And then once I get that, I'll start arranging this huge, messy vomit document into something that has some kind of sense of order. But ultimately, uh, I probably throw away 50 to 60 percent of what I write to get it all out. So that's why somebody like a Jeff Lemire, you know, who who I love and but, you know, he he doesn't write 50 percent more than he needs. <laughs> he writes what he needs to. And, and he's done. And, it's, and that seems amazing. It seems so lovely. But this way does I, seem like approachable to me. Like, I feel like it would be, uh, you know, I'm just somebody who could like procrastinate. Yes. Until I'm dead. I don't know. Like, I could <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's me kind too. of like it's helpful to hear that, hear what you go through when you're when you're doing it and like. Yeah, spitting something out, even if it's yeah. like not satisfactory and getting over it and just doing it is like, it's yeah. helpful to hear that from yeah. uh, a professional and like somebody who's <laughs> like, do, who I, who we both admire your work. So yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, creative process is so tied to personality. So, you know, you just have to keep listening to other people's process until one sounds like it makes sense yeah to you but i will say that uh you know i i mean i i if it's the only way that you can do it as it is for me then uh more power to you but if you can find a better way i I would recommend it (laughs) but i because what ends up happening is you you know you you have this massive document yeah like everything's a novel to me everything starts as a novel it's the worst and then and then you just have to chip away, chip away, chip away. And, um, depending on what, how much, how many pages the publisher is giving you, you know, you're, you're definitely going to lose like really valuable stuff. You're going to lose the first thing that's going to get caught is character interactions or that silent panel. That's just somebody thinking, you know? And, and, um, I really think that, uh, God such as she is, it lives in the, in, in the tiny moments not in the big, not in the plot. Plot sucks. Plot. Yeah. Nobody's ever come up with a decent plot in their lives. <laughs> like it's the little things. It's it's the it's that's where it all lives. So when you have to start cutting that stuff, it it it's heartbreaking. Do you find yourself describing a lot? Of, like, are you giving to an artist? Like, I know, like it probably differs for for each artist that you're it working does. with. But yeah. like, how much description do you tend to like 
give or are you like in panel one, this is happening in, you know, like how much does that, how much of that do you do typically? I I do do a a lot of panel description. I try not to overwhelm my artists. Um, You know, I've, I'm friends of mine have worked with like Alan Moore and they've received these legendary, you know, where it's like a 52 page script for a 10 page comic book. <laughs> like it's just like, it just yeah. makes you, it just, you'd want to shoot yourself if you had to draw that. Yeah. And um, so I try not to do that. So I try to find a happy middle ground, but I'm looking for really what I'm looking to do is a few things. I'm not really looking to tell you what to draw. Right. I'm looking to inspire you to draw something cool. So I try to use, uh, you'll hear a lot of people when they're talking to young comic book writers say, don't write anything that can't be drawn. And that's true to a certain degree. And you certainly need to watch your word count in your panel descriptions because you don't want to discourage an artist or confuse an artist. You need to be clear and concise about everything you want. But I also find that um, if you have enough of a command of language to just get something that's emotional inside that panel description, something that's poetic, something that's going to, that they will have to stop and think about how to make, you know, how to get that in there. Sure. And if you find the right balance between that, I think it can be really exciting. Now, having said that, I'm now working with two different artists who I have been working with forever. One is Alberto Ponticelli, who I did Unknown Soldier with sure. in Goodnight Paradise. And he and I have moved into a whole other realm of scripting. Yeah. where We're basically like, we're just, I don't know. We're just shooting the shit and a comic book comes out. <laughs> that's a great place to be, I bet. Yeah, that's awesome. Not being an artist but loving comic books for so long, mm-hmm. I'm constantly looking for scripts. Like, I've told Kate, like, I'm like, and I've asked other people, I'm like, where do we, because, like, it feels like a, a comic book script for me is so unobtainable. Like, occasionally mm-hmm. I'll see one of them in the back of stuff. I've even picked mm-hmm. up that classic, like, How to Write Books by Alan Moore and the DC one. And I'm like, these mm-hmm. things don't still don't inform me as much as, like, how I can pick up a play or a, or a screenplay and be like, oh, this is how these work. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like comic books to me, it's still like, how, I want to see the page before it hits the art. You know what I mean? So Yeah. That- well, and also, honestly, also, you guys, um, I don't know what your website presence is like or anything, but if you have a place, I, I, I'll happily, I mean, I have to find them, but I'll happily send you like some of the scripts for the Hellboy comics and you guys can post them or whatever. Be that's all. That'd be that. great. Oh, yeah. yeah. That'd be awesome. And you can I think see how we handle that. Now, Baron, now one thing I think that's interesting about comics, and this is true of film as well too, is um, you're going to have the script that's going to go to the artist and then you're going to have the lettering pass script. I mean, this isn't true of all writers, but it's true of myself. And so they'll be very different. So it's pretty exciting to see the artist script and then in like pair it up with the art and see where the artists made new choices, different choices, which I always uh, encourage. And then also see how that impacts our lettering and like how we move forward because everything's a process. So often an artist will really nail a look or a vibe in a panel. And you realize that all your text that you wrote for this panel is completely unnecessary. That, you know, you can cut this and yeah. you can let this panel live and you don't need to talk on top of it. Um, inversely, the opposite also happens where an artist totally shits the bed <laughs> and you have to like write all the whole thing yeah. to make so the like, reader knows what's going on. Now I need an on. inner monologue to be like... <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. The character's just blinking there. That's so... So, yeah, uh, just yeah. to interject, that's so funny. In the, like, do, listen to another podcast that's friends of ours go over, like, the Steve Ditko, like, Spider-Man. It, if you oh, go back yeah. and list that, you can see that Stanley doesn't like Ditko. So he just, like, fills the panels with so much language that's almost <laughs> making fun of his art. And, yeah. and he does that with yeah. Kirby a little, too. It's very funny. But that's all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's comics like that where, like, oh, you made a mistake. I can see some of the art underneath your words. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously, yeah. That. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's great well i i love that insight because i i'm a film lover too and that's the thing that fascinates me too is like learning how like oh this scene had so much words um one that comes to mind is uh, the movie uh sicario apparently mm-hmm. in the very end of the movie there was like a monologue that uh, i forget the writer's name that did hell and hell high rider uh sheridan whatever his name is yeah Ty- yeah, I yeah. Know about, he yeah. like had a monologue for benicio and Benicio showed up and Denny, the director, and Benicio was like, I don't need to say all this. I'll do it all in one look. And that's what the movie is. Nice. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not saying yes. that Sheridan should maybe be a little bit mad about that, but also like that's sort of the creative process when it's collaborative like that. Absolutely. And look, you know, this is the thing. Like we're not, I mean, I'm I'm now moving into writing novels and stuff, but we're not novelists when we write comic book scripts and when we write, you know, we're we're just a brick in the wall. You know, we're just here to build a straight, solid, flat foundation. And then the artist is going to build the house and the colorist is going to build the house on top of it. So, you know, I think there's a real death of ego to it that has actually been quite good for me because I was a bit of an asshole before I got into <laughs> comics. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's really good. And I and it's true in movies, too. I don't know if you've ever read the screenplay for The Limey or if you've ever seen the movie. The I know Limey, The Limey. But, I never uh, read the screenplay. Great movie. Um, but if you've seen the movie, you know that it's completely out of order, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's a, a little bit of a virtuosic like feat of editing. And um, if you read the screenplay, it's completely written in order. Ah. And it's a whole different animal entirely and i i think you know we need to do a lot more of that in comics I think. oh that's great i love but it. it's a grind comics is a grind man we <laughs> never have enough time to make them we never like you know there's never enough time to have that aha moment we're like oh i know what'll fix this <laughs> no we're just grinding <laughs> to, to the finish line yeah exactly i also wanted to ask about um so i saw that you were like going to pakistan and getting kids involved in comics and like bringing them back to cons and stuff like that yeah um are you gonna i guess like once traveling is less like insane would do you have plans on doing that again this year coming yes so i hope so i don't entirely know what the future holds so that was a that's a nonprofit that i got involved in called comics for peace and we were getting our funding um from from the State Department. It was predominantly run by uh, some friends of mine in Pakistan. And we were getting funding from the State Department. Uh, and then Trump came into office and he basically gutted the State Department. Yeah. And we lost all of our funding. So even before Pakistan was on a no-fly list for us, we, we had lost our funding for that. Okay. But our intention was always, and I would like to get back to it, and, and I haven't spoken to my partners in Pakistan in a while on that, but... Our intention was always to, and we got one year of it done, was to, um, you know, I basically, I went to Pakistan. I did a college tour where I spoke. 
uh, completely aware, by the way, of the colonial implications of like the the, the white man from the neo-Western matrix sure. showing up in South Asia <laughs> to be like, I'm here to empower Spreading you the kids. good word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, but, but, you know, but we did, we had a little bit of a device for that. And, uh, and so I did the college tour. We handpicked a bunch of young people that we met on that tour and had them make their comics. Then, as you had said, we brought them to San Diego Comic-Con. We were only able to bring two as um, uh, the uh, political diplomatic situations between Pakistan and the United States was starting to become problematic. Yeah. The day that I landed, by the way, in Pakistan, Donald Trump was like, Pakistan's nothing but a bunch of terrorists. And I was like, oh, you motherfucker. Yeah, like I'm right. coming off the plane. Mm. So um, anyway, uh, so we brought these two kids to, you know, uh, and it, it was so exciting. We brought a young woman and an openly gay a uh, young man and and we gave away thousands and thousands of comics wow. and people came to the table and 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 met these young people and the young people were out of their you know you know most young people uh, in that part of the world are not going to have an opportunity to come to the west and i'm not even saying they should want to come sure, to the west yeah. but but we should want to go everywhere and do everything and 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 um you know and the governments of the world should not keep us from having yeah, you yeah. Know, the the people of the world are family and the governments of the world are strangers so but they you know so they got to have this extraordinary experience you know and and our intention was always we were going to do it next in Kenya because we have some connections in Kenya. Cool. Our intention was always to end up eventually with an entire row at San Diego Comic-Con every year of tables and each table was going to be from another part of the world that had no representation at all at Comic-Con. Yeah. Yeah. And and like get that conversation going. And then the next generation, what these kids were going to, and we can still do this, but what I was supposed to head over there next to do in Pakistan was take the kids that we had picked and now sort of train them to go on the college circuit and pick the next generation. So remove the white guy sure, from the equation, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then I would just, then I would just kind of become part of the liaison at, at San Diego Comic-Con. And um, it's kind of my dream to keep that project alive, but I don't know where we're at with it. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. I think that, you know, I spend a lot of my life going to parts of the world that have had not been given a voice here in the West and taking stories from those parts of the world. And and um, while I'm really proud of that work, the work I did in Iraq, the work I did in South Sudan, the work I did in Uganda, while I'm proud of that work, I also know there is an inherent problematics with it. And, and so what really needs to be done is not for me to go there and bring their stories back. What really needs to be done is for us to bring them here yeah. and let them tell their stories. And that's sort of, I was, I sort of want to do that project because I, I can't help but feel like I have sins to make up for. Like, um, yeah. So I hope it. I mean, I hope we can get it up and running. I appreciate that you that. even because you, in the videos that I that I've had been watching, like you do make a point to talk about that, like trying to ethically bring these stories to a Western audience, and effort made is like more than a lot of Western comic creators, I think, take into consideration at all. Like, you know, some people just that thought doesn't even cross their minds to, to try mm -hmm. to do that. So, yeah, I just appreciate that effort to do that, to, like, give somebody else a means to to yeah. get that, to get their own story across and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's great. I really hope you continue to, like, I don't know where 
funding would come from necessarily but i mean hopefully we'll move i don't really know i mean i don't have a whole lot of faith in my country anymore (laughs) yeah um you know uh i don't know that we're i don't know that a future there's a future where we that where we can affect like good through the state department or but to your point you know we are if we are dying culturally as a nation it's precisely because we only export narrative and we don't import narrative. Yeah. And this is the real problem. Like we're not, we're, we're so uh, isolated from the rest of the world's stories, man. And stories are it. It's all, that's the only thing. Yeah. It's the only thing is the art. Everything else is, is so in the moment, but the art is part of this conversation that we were talking about. So I, I think, you know, it's at this point, it's almost selfish we sort of we need South Asian stories to have prominence in the United States. We need, you know, Middle Eastern narratives. We need uh, Islamic and, and Baha'i stories. Yeah. We need, you know, it's it's um, without it, we're we're just going to keep tumbling down our own assholes. Yeah, just being like exactly isolated from is. the rest of the world and not relating to people from other parts of the world and like yeah, precisely. thinking that it's and not you know, relevant or something and it's just exactly sad. And there's this wall around the whole world that I have gone back and forth across over over the been fortunate in my lifetime to be able to do. And on one side of that wall, even though there is there's definitely poverty and homelessness, but for the most part, on one side of that wall, people get to eat three meals a day. They have some kind of healthcare option. On the other side of that wall, people live and die entirely by fate. Yeah. And 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 I just we can intellectualize that in the United States, but until you either get to go onto the other side of that wall and see what it's really like to be in a famine zone, which is the worst thing that I've ever seen in my life. And you know, I've been in multiple conflict zones. Yeah. Until you you do that, you're not really going to know and you're not going to be capable of true empathy and true compassion. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of a, that's not true. I mean, obviously people can, people can intellectualize suffering and they can be empathic, but um, it's just so valuable to be concerned with the human welfare of someone who doesn't look like I you. I think being yeah. there and really seeing, seeing people does, yeah, I think it does do, it like triggers something in your brain that makes you say like, this is fucking happening. I'm not seeing it on a screen. Like, I think yeah. that that is really a valuable thing. But yeah. yeah, I guess like until somebody can get that I think I think that's a really cool like very necessary thing to like allow people to like be empowered to bring their stories here. I really hope that gets to continue in some way. I mean, not to put it on your shoulders or something like that, but <laughs> but um I I just thought when I was like listening to it I was like that's so fucking cool. I don't know. I just liked your Hellboy shit before, but then I was like watching all these other interviews. I was like, "Oh, this guy's like the shit. He's like really yeah. trying to be like ethically telling stories if they're if they're not directly his. He's like consciously think going there." I was like, "Okay, this is like I I just appreciate that you put in the work you know like yeah it's, it's very cool thanks yeah. thank you so much yeah. I, I i mean that yeah you know yeah i i just like i said i got really politically activated in my early 20s and um and i don't know why and, and then it, and then you know when i went to uganda in 2007 and traveled with those child soldiers um i changed every i mean it it was it really started to make me really question like what is the value of a human life yeah. and what is and and why are these systems in place that devalue us 
And so that has really become the work. And like who benefits from that, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, In 2007, there was a Koromajong cattle war. And the Koromajong are a people who live in in East Africa. Um, They're kind of in Kenya. They're kind of in parts of Uganda, kind of in parts of what is now Southern Sudan. But when I was there, it was just Sudan. So they believe it's part of their religious belief that all the cattle in the world belong to them. So all the cattle in Texas are theirs. They just can't quite get to them yet or whatever. So they're prone to cattle wars, which means they're prone to stealing other people's cattle. So, you know, it's a, it's a culturally problematic thing and, um, uh, but it's their thing or whatever. But when I was there, I talked more and more to very legitimate sources who were telling me like, because at one, one of my questions at one point was like, where do the guns come from? Yeah. Why are there so many guns here? And there's a lot of reasons. Um, one is that the Cold War flooded East Africa with AK-40, Chinese and Russian made AK-47s. And that gun will last forever. Mm. It's, I mean, as a, as a, as an, it is the object of art of the 20th century. Don't let anybody tell you. <laughs> Brutal. You know, pop art. Yeah. yeah it's, but that's but the, it's truth. the truth. Like, yeah. It's the truth. More than the Campbell soup cans that Warhol painted, yeah. it's the AK-47. So, um, and that gun lasts forever. It's a, it's an extremely well-made piece of clumsy tech. And uh, so that's part of it. But new guns come in all the time. So that's a real question. So when the Kormajong are involved in these cattle wars, who is arming them? Like, why are they not, you know, a Kormajong has two pieces of modern equipment. Everything else is, uh, the rural ones at least, are exactly how they lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And those modern pieces of equipment are an AK-47 and a cell phone, right? Yeah. That's it. So so where are they getting them? And, and, you know, it looks like, I don't think it's conspiracy to say that the global cattle industry, the beef industry out of, you know, Dubai, South Africa, and Texas are working with proxy groups to arm these groups because they can get cheaper beef out of this part of the world if there's a conflict there. And so that is evil. Yeah. 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 That's evil. Human being. Yeah. So, you know, and then if you only have to travel in these exploited parts of the world for a little bit, I mean, you know, I get to, I, I'm privileged enough and I have a tremendous amount of guilt about it to helicopter in and helicopter out of these places. And um, these people live there and it doesn't take long to see that this is the very engine of the world, this this type of economic exploitation to the point of absolute evil, yeah. not to the point of like, oh, we're just trying to make a buck as a company. I'm talking about sheer throwing human lives into the grinder yeah. for and money like comes out the other side. decimating the global south for like fucking yeah. any, any mm. penny for without yeah, blinking that's right. an eye. Yeah. That's right. With no, they're sleeping at night. Yeah. They're not like, you know. Yeah, there's no like, you know, appealing to somebody's morality when they're already making decisions like that. You know, it's like. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So once, I think once you really sort of encounter that, you, there's there part of the mission of being alive has to be just just keep just keep shouting about yeah. that because uh you know it's it's not there's no hope for humanity if we can't get a grips on this kind of greed and wealth hoarding and uh the idea that human life has no value yeah and, i think we'll keep this part in the podcast i don't think, I think we'll cut okay, this out cool. i think it has to be <laughs> i think it has to be because we yeah you're here because we love your comic book writing but you're proving that you can do something like a comic book, which, you know, a lot of us just sort of go like, it entertains us. 
But we're mm-hmm. proving the point that you can be socially and uh, politically conscious and globally conscious of how to, you know, what needs to change and continue to do something like write a comic book and yeah. let yourself mm-hmm. infuse it or not, but still be part of it. You know what I mean? Because I think we sort of sometimes think that you have to be one or the other. I just have to like turn off all that and just create art. Right. Where it's like, no, you can have it all. You just have, you, there's a balance, of course. And you're showing us there's yeah. a balance, but it, you're, you're, sh- you're literally a great example to inspire other future writers and creators that you can, you can do it all. It just will take a little bit of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you should do the work. Yeah. <laughs> the work's important. Yeah. Do the work kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, thanks man. That means a lot to me, but I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I don't even believe there is such a thing as escapism. Everybody's like, Oh, I just want to make, Hey, I just want to make people's lives happy and write escapism, but there's no escape to quote Sartre. You know, there's like, it, uh, Satra, sorry. That uh, it, it um, everything you do, everything you express is going to come from someplace, and it's either going to be unconscious or conscious. Yeah. Most likely, it's going to be both. And like um, you know, so when Michael Bay makes a movie with giant robots punching each other, and and we say it's just escapism, he's really saying something about American jingoism. He's saying something about mili- militarism mm-hmm. and fetishization of of this hardware. Yeah. Um. Even if he doesn't intend to. So I just think, you know, get a handle on your, uh, get a, you know, try to be less unconscious and try to be more conscious. But at the same time, the craft is, the craft is not to turn the audience off. You know, the craft is like, keep them on the hook. Fiction is an incredibly powerful tool for communicating um, uh, socially conscious things. But nobody wants to feel like they're reading propaganda. Right uh you know or agitprop like you know so it has taken a long time for me to try to figure out like how can i do this and not be preachy you know so how can you make your superhero comics about the dangerous nature of power how can you make your you know what i mean your horror comics about the um about the existential dread of being alive like how can you so yeah so that that's the work i think is is finding that in your craft yeah and i think people do i think audiences do crave that like whether I mean, you talk about like consciously or unconsciously for creating it, but also like in consuming it. I think that they're like action movies and shit. There's just so there's just like so like it's something so empty. You just have like all of these like a big action movie or something that's like says nothing or like reflects only the like big explosions of American society mm-hmm. and shit like that. Like I think people. I think people do want to consume something that has a little bit more depth, you know, maybe, maybe not enough people, but, but yeah, I guess that's, I guess it's like what you're saying, like making it appealing enough that someone stops and thinks about like, yeah, about, about why there's only like this much of, of pop culture that like reflects that attitude. And yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm kind of like rambling. I don't know. No, 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 totally. I think that, you know, and especially since uh, I love to work. <laughs> especially, I'm, 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 I'm writing 50 pages what, over here. This whole podcast is exactly. working it out. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm, I'm always trying to work it out. Uh, uh, but uh, and I never feel worked out. That's my. But I think that, you know, like to like, you know, you bring up a great example, like you, you bring up action films. And so like there are certain action films that are just awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's like, OK, like Die Hard. Why do we think Die Hard is awesome? Uh, well, he loves his wife, man, mm-hmm. and everything's going to shit around him. He's in a tough spot. He's a human being, you know. I am a huge fan of uh, 1970s and 80s Hong Kong 
kung fu cinema. And I love this cinema. Why do I love it? Well, there is a lot of, especially in the 70s work, less so in the 80s, but there's just a lot of like what it means to be loyal and all this shit that is is pretty surface. But I love it because mostly it's just human beings doing amazing things on camera. (laughs) It's like watching (laughs) dance. It's like watching people dancing, right? So, So like I can... That has value to me because I can see the human animal in a joyful moment and, and they may be affecting like they're fighting or they may be affecting like it's a battle between good and evil. But what I'm really seeing is pure joy in, in our physicality and how we occupy spaces physically. So that has value. Yeah. So there's all kinds of levels of value that we can take. But it is unfortunate. I do feel like and maybe this is just because I'm an old man. It's very possible that. My observation, the observation I'm about to make is not legit and it's entirely based on my, <laughs> my gender generation and ethnicity. But, um, I, I feel like we're in this moment where people are trying to say extremely important things about what it means to be human, what it means to be in, in a society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're doing it with such a, a disregard for grace and they're doing it with such like, it's, it's not. It's there's something we're missing something. We're missing um, the craft of it somehow. Yeah. I feel like right now we're really saying what we mean instead of <laughs> instead of like burying it, uh, like bear, couching it deeply so that it can be transmitted across time. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the narratives we're telling ourselves today that are very important socially are not going to stand the test of time. Whereas you, if you look at you know, black exploitation cinema, which was obviously had some problems, but you know, there was way more uh, black performers and even to a certain degree, black directors yeah. working in the seventies than there are today. So, you know, um, so a lot of this is just corporate virtue signaling that isn't going to survive the test of time. It's not going to be a transmitted signal to a future generation about how, how our times were and how we lived and, and how much we wanted to be better. Um, so I don't know if that's true. That's my ramble. I don't know if that's true. Uh, like I said, all old people eventually just hate the moment that they're in. <laughs> that's just like what it means to become an no, old, bitter, sour motherfucker. Oh, happy uh, Yeah, happy belated birthday. birthday. That's right? a great way to bring in happy belated birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was telling Dave before I started, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, he's, I was like watching these other interviews. He's like a really cool guy. His birthday came up in like three of these interviews. We got to say happy, <laughs> happy birthday, birthday to him. Yeah. I was and like, June twenty first. I like yeah. have it memorized. June twenty first. I'm like, oh my god! I, I, it came up in like three interviews. I'm like, we gotta say happy birthday, man! Like, really. Do. And I, uh, I mean, it's a big one. Yeah. 50's 50 a big is a big one. one. Yeah. Congratulations! Right. Yeah, yeah. Getting Thank there. you. Thanks. And I was telling, um, yeah, I, mean, I was telling my wife that you sound. And when I heard that, that you just turned fifty, I was like, he has such a youthful voice. I didn't believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was surprised. Cling to you. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, um, I mean, oh, yeah. also, just kind of like an aside, speaking of like kung fu movies. Yes. Been going to, to the New Beverly Cinema has been doing like a bunch of kung fu. Well, they also had like a exploitation night and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there was like recently saw Once Upon a Time in China 1 and 2. Amazing. They were so, yes. I, I just like, I'm like just kind of scratching the surface on these. And like, oh my god, uh, yeah, it's just really exciting. Do you have any like? Are there any recommendations that you have where you're like, I guess <laughs> if we start <laughs> this, yeah, this is, <laughs> uh, yeah, man, I wouldn't even know where to start. I guess that's a big, uh, yeah, that's a 
huge genre. Like, there's kind of, it's kind of hard. But I guess, like, I, I yeah. never really appreciated Jet Li so much until seeing those movies. And, like, you talk about it being dancing, but st- it's, like, it's, like, dancing and wire work, but still such a feat of, like, physical. Oh, it's extraordinary like, it, what they It's achieve. insane. It's insane that anybody can just make their body do the things that that those actors are doing first of all i'm going to say the most obvious thing first and many of your listeners are going to be like yeah 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 i already know this (laughs) he has become somewhat problematic because he is a um supporter of mainland china and their push to um de-democratize hong kong Mm -hmm. but there is no substitute for jackie chan he is the most extraordinary physical performer i watched police story for the first time like a month ago and it's yeah police story it's unreal how funny it is and how good he is yeah have you seen super cop have you seen police story three i haven't haven't seen police story three yet with michelle yo where she herself lands like Jumps a motorcycle onto a moving train. Holy shit! I, I yes, I've seen that that movie. Now that I think about it, because it's I amazing. Know, definitely watch. Because I, I think Rumble in the sequels. Bronx when that came to America, then I saw a bunch of them immediately <laughs> after. So because Rumble in the Bronx is definitely like one of my favorites as a youth. Seeing that movie in the big screen, so <laughs> it's a lot of us. No, no, no. We, that's how a lot of us here in the West were turned on to him. But I have to say though, if you watch enough Jackie Chan in Rumble in the Bronx, you, you literally see him slowing down so yes. the performers he's performing with can like catch up to their beats. But Rumble in the Bronx does have a joust between a Lamborghini and uh, like a, a, a hovercraft, and so that's my bar. I don't know what your yeah. bar is, but that passes my <laughs> bar. Oh, that's pretty dope. But uh, but honestly, like I think Police Story one, three, and four are incredible. I think um, you know the, one of his English films, Mister Nice Guy, is just universally panned, and everybody hates it. And it is a banger. He's amazing. Is it like I don't one know he directed why. or something? Like is it like? Uh, it was actually it was directed by. Um, Oh, see, when I'm under the line, oh, my, no, my mind goes. No, no, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I should be more brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's directed by his friend who he grew up with, Samu Hung, uh, the great Samu Hung, who um, you should watch some Samu Hung films. He's incredible. I'm writing He's stuff like down. Dude, yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so obviously, you know, uh, there's so much great Jackie Chan stuff. Um, but also, if you want to watch artful kung fu, yeah. like remove yourself from stupid fun and you just, you want to see a work of art? I would recommend King Hu, uh, his the director. His name is K I N well, King, mm-hmm. and his last name is Hu H U. It's not for everybody. It's long, but uh, to me, to me, he's. I literally think of him in the same way that I think of like John Ford oh. or Akira oh. Kurosawa oh. or you know or Sergio Leone, like these big adventure directors. And I I just love that shit. Awesome. And um, you know, you can watch like and also. I'll tell you the coolest thing about golly, this feel free to cut all this, but I'm just I'm just about to go at batshit insane about kung fu movies. The cool thing about King Hu is that there's a total meritocracy in his films. The men and the women are at equal stature, both as villains and as heroes, because kung fu is the great leveler in his universe, right? You if you work hard enough, you're like disciplined you, enough to. Yeah. Yes. Oh, cool. And and you have the moral code, right? <laughs> the kung fu. If you're means, upright. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, then it doesn't matter, right? If you're weak or strong or man or woman or any of these other things, like it doesn't matter because um, it, because kung fu is the equalizer. Awesome. And so, so you just get the greatest, honestly, I, the greatest female kung fu artists of of that era of the late seventies are in his movies, and it is 
so awesome. It is just so awesome. I'm going to watch um, it. I'm going to watch it, man. That's great. Dude, they're so dope. <laughs> they're so dope. And I, I would recommend maybe starting with some that are like dragging in, okay. and, you know, and start with some that are much more like, like, um, they're, it's called Wujia. I'm sure yeah. you know what that means, but yeah. So they're much more Wujia, but if you're liking them and you're feeling the vibe, then you can move on to like raining in the mountain or a uh, touch of Zen, I think is probably one of the most beautiful Kung Fu movies ever made, but, but definitely see if you're feeling the vibe because, you know, before you start like a three and a half hour <laughs> meditation, on... <laughs> Get it. I don't want to, I mean, this looks you know, awesome um, though. Like literally, there's so much. literally when I look up King Hu, the first article I find is where to begin with King Hu. That's the very <laughs> <Yes>! first <laughs> on BFI.org. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, it looks like I'll have like plenty of guides and stuff. The, yeah. Oh man. Awesome. If you can, and I, you, Feel free to email. You I guys will. Have my email yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll true. talk. This is it. We're kung fu That's buddies it. now. You, you can't. You can't. I'm stop. so excited. But I feel like I just going that. at. Yeah, New Beverly. I had been so long since I went anywhere to see a movie, and that was like our my first time back. Was like not for not for that night. It was for um shit. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. I'm gonna find <laughs> the name of this movie because it was so. It was like Kung Fu's Hero. I think it was called. Oh, um, cool. Oh, I don't know. It's it. like. I guess it's like a rare 35 millimeter, whatever, but it's a, a new Beverly yeah, that's trip. A new yeah. Beverly whole shit, whole deal. It could be like so boring and dumb, but if it's on 35 millimeter, you could go watch it there. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So sorry to change gears real quick away from. No, no, Kung we need to. Yeah, we need sorry. to. I'm, I got no, before, Cause we're going to be getting near the end, but like before we get no, out I of here, I appreciate your administration <laughs> before getting young out dragon, of here, you, young dragon and Kung Fu. I think there's sorry, something Dave, I want to know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> young dragon. There you go. And are you sure you don't want to turn this into a Kung Fu podcast? <laughs> I'll let you two start a Kung Fu podcast. Sorry. <laughs> this comes from a, a listener question, but it's it's great. Oh, and it cool. can also talk about what you, you sort of touched on earlier about your like your after 1947 and sort of like your why we haven't seen you writing yeah. more in the world of Hellboy. You can speak to that as well. But this is also just. Some cool, uh, just a general question. He says, was there anything more that you wanted w to do within the BPRD or any particular sandboxes you yourself wanted to play in with the Hellboy universe? That's a really good question. You know, it's been so long and you do a lot when, when you are no longer a part of something that you were excited to be a part of. You do a lot of like um, burying of resentments. <laughs> so I might have forgotten. For sure. I do. I mean, I definitely would have liked to have continued on with exploring the history of the Cold War through the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. I think building those early stories was really exciting, and I would have loved to continue that. I would have loved to explore Vivara more because out of everybody, she's the most you know, she's the closest to my heart. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. So, you know, of course, so you always walk away wanting to do more. I mean, it's, I, I don't think it exists. I don't think I've ever walked off a project being like, oh, well, I got to do everything I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. um, even though I have walked off projects on my own because I did feel like they had come to a termination point. It doesn't mean that I got everything out of it that I personally creatively wanted to. Right. So yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if you guys if it's interesting or you want to talk about why I didn't do more 
uh, stuff in the Magnolia universe, but that I, I leave. I'll, I would love to I hear. Mean, I mean, I'm whatever interested. you're comfortable sharing. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to like push. Well, you. yeah, I wouldn't. I won't say anything that I, I. But also, I'm not really. I don't think. I mean, for one thing, the main player in this is, is not uh, no longer relevant. Yeah. So, yeah. so basically, what happened was when we were working on 47, I had made a couple of mistakes. Uh, when, when we did 46. Mike and I really built that together. And a, and a lot of it is me pitching stuff to Mike and then Mike refining it. That's mostly what 46 is. But then I started doing Unknown Soldier and then I had that graphic novel with Neil Young and I was really busy and I was not at a point in my career yet where I had been so starving for so long that I did this thing that I think a lot of freelancers do where I say, I'm just saying yes to everything. Yeah. Uh, no matter how bad it is or how out of my wheelhouse it is because I, I, I need... The work, but there comes a time I think in a young freelancer's life where uh, their habit, they're habitually saying yes to everything, but they're getting more offers, and you get into a really bad spot because yeah. you've now you've overcommitted yourself. And I had really overcommitted myself, and I took a long time to get to forty-seven. If you look at the the span, and so I think Mike and Scott Alley were already frustrated with me at that point. Also, what that did was. Even though I do really believe in my heart that a lot of 47 is mine, what it really did was if you let Mike, because Mike is an idea machine, so if you let Mike, you know, get on his exercise equipment, and <laughs> then you're very quickly going to, like, none of your ideas are going yeah. <laughs> to make mm -hmm. it, right? So Mike and I started to fight a little bit over it, over 47, because... I loved Mike's direction and I always loved his notes, but I feel, felt like he wasn't letting my voice in. Sure. Now he did, ultimately. I feel very proud of 47. And I think I mentioned to you guys in a tweet that Simon is based on a real yeah. person, yeah. Uh, who a friend of mine who was lost at sea during World War II. And so a lot of me is in that book. And and um, But what happened was I was taking a long time to write it. I was overextended. The beauty of it, from my point of view, was that we? I was at Vertigo at the same time as Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon was doing Day Trippers at Vertigo, yeah. and I knew the editor of Day Trippers, and I knew Gabriel, and I knew Fabio, and I knew that they were not ready for pages yet. Okay. So in my whole, this is super interesting. I think. I think so. In my whole, in my whole career, I've never ever had an artist that I'm aware of. I'm sure we'll probably get emails. <laughs> I've never ever had an artist wait for pages. Now, what this means is that sometimes I've given them five pages of a script that's not finished, which sucks. And I haven't done that in a long time. But there have been times when I've had to do that. But never has an artist sat there waiting to draw something and not had at least one page in front of a script in sure. front of them. So I knew that Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon were not ready to start on 47. And I was in contact with them and their editor. And so I was putting on the back burner 47 while I was working on other stuff because I was like they're juggling so many anyway. projects. Yeah, they're not going to draw yeah. it, right? So so I have time. So I'm juggling all this stuff and I'm trying to manage everything. And uh, and I'm not a great administrator <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So I finally turn in, you know, I, I'm like this. Now we're on the last script. That's where that's where it's at. Like we're on the last script. And uh, I'm not I'm, I'm a little bit I'm late. I'm late. I'm not a little bit. I'm late yeah. on this script. But nobody can start drawing it yet. And then Scott contacts me and, you know, look and look, Scott, you know, well, whatever. So Scott contacts me and he says, uh, you're really pissing us off with how late you are. And yeah. I said, I totally understand, Scott. You're absolutely right. Here's the deal. I know exactly where I promise you. I know exactly where Fabio and Gabriel are in their schedule. I know exactly what's going on. Uh, I they we've I'm talking to them. 
And I guess he got his point is true. He said, it's not your job to schedule this book. And that's true. Right. He's right. And they said, you're you're right, man. You're absolutely right. I should have turned that script in on deadline. I'm underwater. I'm sorry. This is a whole new world for yeah. me. Having too much work is new for me. And I, um, but I'm trying to manage it. I'm going to get out from under it. And he said, you may get hired at Dark Horse again after this, but I will never hire you again. Yeah. And I said, Scott, uh, I make I made a mistake. Yeah. And we've made a lot of great comic books together, you know, and you've never I mean, maybe you have not thought the work was good and not told me, but every signal I've gotten up into this point is that we've done good work. Yeah. You know, don't don't you think that maybe we could implement like a three strikes in your outlaw or something like that? Right. Like this seems right. uh, excessive. And he was just being really, he was just really hard, hard lined about it. I was kind of pissed off. Yeah. Now, I don't know the backs, like, I don't know what's behind the scenes of this. Every editor is in some ways a line of defense against the most popular creator on that book. So maybe it was Mike saying this stuff. I don't know. But but Mike and I are totally cool. Right. So I don't know. Right. And then when I did turn in the final script for 46, for 47, forgive me, Scott said, this isn't good enough. We're going to have to rewrite it, but we're not going to, we're not going to include you. Oh, shit. Yeah. And that was it. Gosh. And I was out. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I was really overextended. I'm sorry that you don't feel it's good enough. And uh, and I I swear to God, when that book came out, there's not a word changed in that book. Really? So wow. yeah, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but so I just think he's trying to like it. flex on you a little bit and be like disciplinarian I think so. to a degree or something. I think so. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this, you know, I owe a couple of pretty problematic men for my career, and that that's part part of the privilege of being like a white male growing up in comics in the early aughts. I always knew Scott was kind of on a power trip, yeah, yeah. you know, like it was pretty, it's obvious when some dude's on a kind of a power trip. And then I also became really close with a lot of the people at Dark Horse at that time, particularly Shauna Gore, uh, who was a very good friend of mine and continues to be a very good friend of mine. And is like one of the very few people in comics who has met my wife and like, yeah. you know, like, and, and and there was also uh, Jay Adidon. I, I was very close with Jay, came and stayed at my place. And like, I got really close with the people at, at Dark Horse that were that were under Scott. Yeah. And all of them, without without Shauna, because, you know, it took Shauna years to tell her story. But w- without Shauna telling me what was going on, all of them were always like, Scott is not a good person. Yeah. He's not a good person. Yeah. Everybody at Dark Horse would say yeah. that. And I'd be like, well, you know. Just trying to get every- you to, like, not lose sleep over it so much and be like. Yeah, yeah I guess so. And this was even, I mean, this was before I was ejected yeah. out, of, out of the Hellboy stuff. So, you know, and I had seen Scott behave totally unacceptably well drunk yeah. parties and stuff yeah. uh, at conventions. And I am the child of um, a drug addict and an alcoholic. And so I probably more so than is probably healthy. I let that shit yeah, slide like, off. Yeah, you forgive a it, lot of behavior. Yeah. yeah. That, that really shouldn't be forgiven. But I, it's just a defense mechanism, you know, that I grew up right. with when I was a little boy and a, and, and whatever. We don't have to get into it, but it wasn't cool. (laughs) And so, uh, so, you know, um, so, and also it was a different time. It was a different time. It was a time when like white men were not being held accountable for their fucking actions. And so, so I saw all that go on and then, you know, and then, and then Scott, I felt Scott kind of really turned on me. Now, whether that's true, I don't know Scott's side of the story. And then it came, you know, and then that stuff came out with Joe Harris, uh, who's also a very close friend of mine whom I love. Like, that's the thing, like he was harming my friends, you know, and I, 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 um, uh, and look, you know, 
well, whatever, that doesn't matter. But the, the uh, but you know, and then Scott kind of got out on the odds and then he contacted me a little bit later and was like, Hey, you know, I've really learned my lesson about power and all this stuff. And, um, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah. He emailed me like a, like a few years ago, actually. And, um, it's interesting because I told him pretty much everything that I'm saying now it's like, Scott, you know, I, I, I hear you, man. You know, addiction is hard. I've been living with him. I've been had the people that I have loved. I've been, you know, I've known addicts all my life. And so I hear you and I, I hope that you are, doing everything you can to get back. He's like, Hey, do you think you could start, you know, maybe we could start to like get me back in the industry and all this stuff. You know, he, I mean, he, he wasn't being that obvious about it, but here's the thing. And I totally would have, but he was a dick to yeah. me about kicking me off of Alpha Hellboy. Yeah. So I would have helped him rehabilitate his name, which is sickening to me now because around that time I now learned mostly because Shauna came out publicly that he was engaged in a whisper campaign to like to repair his his uh you know his, the way he was seen yeah. his standing in the community and so when shauna came live with her full story i realized that oh i had been somebody that he like was trying to use to get back in the comments to just like manipulate and like yeah and maybe he doesn't see that way i mean rarely do we see ourselves in that sort of light you know i don't really know but i do know that that the long and short of the story is that i don't think he really treated me fairly there at the end I don't know why, but I think that he has had a lot of problems. I don't know if he still does or not, but that's why I'm not on Hellboy books anymore. It's a very long answer. No, thank you. Like, I just want to say thank you for being- That might be the first time I've said that publicly, by the way. So we'll see how that comes down. (laughs) I appreciate you saying it. Like, yeah, that's that's why I I didn't want to like press necessarily because I was like, I don't know if this is something that would like, in any way like negatively affect you like we wouldn't want to like put something out that's like Ah, you know what are you gonna do (laughs) it's like we uh literally the last story we were talking about was the first story that scott wrote and it was about hood the witch finder kind of like being redeemed in a way where like the the witch was guilty (laughs) the witch was as guilty as she said and like the family was like you burned an innocent woman but it turns out the devil was like cavorting with her and shit and Uh and Dave we had to talk like, about it. Yo, this Scott is written Alley by somebody. And <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, oh Scott wrote. <laughs> whether intentional or not, this doesn't right. look good now. <laughs> yeah. Like, Damn, I guess you're just like defending the guy who like historically burns innocent women and like, <laughs> you know, yeah. fucks this woman until like she's guilty to get burned at the stake and shit. I'm like, I was like, it's just interesting seeing this point of view, this like, character who's never really been shown as a redeeming character before in Hellboy, like, fucks with Hellboy and, like, you know, is, like, this haunting crazy ghost. And it's like, did we need a backstory on him that, like, validates him as a witch hunter that he's, like, (laughs) I I was, like, I was, like, this is kind of fucking nuts. Like, yeah, anyway, that's, like, that was the impression. Amazing. That, and obviously, like, we, as we're reading it, like, those those stories had come out about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, from pretty early on, that was my experience with, because I'm, like, starting Hellboy for this podcast. I, like, had not read it previously. Oh, so awesome. that's, like, our, that's, like, you know, I feel like a couple years into it, like, faster than most, like, Hellboy fans, I'm, like, coming to associate him with kind of acting that way instead of just being, like, mm-hmm. some some editor who like maybe I see in the credits, but don't think too much about otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was quite a powerful editor in his yeah. day, you know, and, 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 and honestly, um, in a good one. Yeah. I mean, you know, for what that's yeah, worth, right. like 
uh, uh, I, I don't think, think that's how people get away with that shit. It's people. like if you can make something good, it's like it's like Miramax or something. It's like you're making good yeah, movies. Yeah, exactly. So people, if you're making people money and you're pumping out good books or whatever or good movies, yeah. companies will forgive you for a lot of bullshit. I think that you know, I think this is changing, and I think it should yeah. change. But yeah, I mean, talent has gotten a lot of people off the hook. Sure. But look, I, I don't think that there there is no art that is so good as to justify exploitation yeah. of, of a human being. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, uh, but I will, you know, and it and it's not even that there can't be redemption for him. It's just that the it's just that he hasn't been honest. Yeah. You know, if there's one thing I learned, you know, I learned I saw a, a reconciliation ceremony in in uh, northern Uganda where a child soldier had returned back to his community and had to go through reconciliation because of the things he had done to that community if he wanted to be accepted back into the community. And um, there's all kinds of reconciliation ceremonies that happen all over the world that that help people who have harmed a community come back. Yeah. And they, they manifest in all kinds of culturally specific ways. But one thing, 100% of what all humanity does to reconcile is that the full truth must be said by the perpetrator. Yeah. That's step one. And until you say everything that you've done to harm that community, you cannot be forgiven. And so, you know, that is my real problem with Scott is that when the full content of Shauna's story came yeah. out, it was like, dude, all this time, you know, there was a whole other dimension to this. Right. And you were just hoping it wasn't going to come yeah, out go away. And so there's no place for reconciliation until you know you address yeah that. you have to honestly and en entirely yeah 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 well i mean thanks for sharing wow. your side of that story too it's it's extremely interesting it's yes yeah yeah it was it's 100 percent. and i just think it's just i thank you again for sharing it with us because i don't i think it might be interesting and not whatever it's important yeah. to have you share that and I think it's, I think, you. yeah, I think right at this point, especially after the Shauna story, you know, it was, it's one thing for him to be like acting crazy and drunk at a party. Right. And again, maybe I'm more forgiving of that than I really should be. Um, uh, maybe I should draw a harder line, but the things, you know, but the other things, yeah. the, the, the manipulation of a, a female employee underneath him, the sexual harassment, the, like, that's, that's another thing. Entirely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that changes what I'm willing to talk about all of a sudden. For sure. Like, you know, yeah, yeah we have probably. to validate Shauna's story. It has to be validated. Yeah. Yes. And then to add to that, I know you had a bad exit, but I want to say your contributions to the Hellboy universe are fucking yeah. phenomenal. So awesome. thank, thank you. you. Like, it's probably better sorry this I way. I would hear about the end of it, but it's like, yeah, I probably would have just fucked it up if I kept doing it. So well, selfishly, we yeah. enjoy, at least we enjoyed what you yeah. did. For, yeah. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Awesome. I was not planning on buying an omnibus for a long time. And I was like, as soon as we read 1946, I had yeah. to get it. Nice. <laughs> it's such a beautiful book. And I, I, t I tell you, I'm not too mad about it, honestly, because the truth is, is like, those are still the biggest checks that I get. My whole career, I've been making comics for 25 years. <laughs> I, that eight page story, you, you know, like if one of my eight page stories is in one of those omnibuses, yeah. I'll get like a $3,000. Oh trick. yeah, that's great. <laughs> Hell yeah. So I appreciate you buying it for one. And you know, in my relationship with Mike is, you know, I don't know if you guys ever saw the interview I did yeah. with him later. You shared all, it with yeah. us and it's wonderful. Yeah, it's oh, so awesome. Cool. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't feel like I, I lost too much in exiting. It would have been great to stick around, but also, 
you know, like I'm a huge fan and also uh, consider myself a personal friend of John Arcudi. And, you know, Arcudi was doing such great yeah, work. It's and, incredible. Um, you know, yeah. but I, I, I don't think, I think that I would have had a fear over the long haul of being as associated with the Hellboy, you know, and not doing my own thing and not finding my own vibe. And yeah. So I'm, I miss working in the Hellboy universe. Uh, I certainly would be getting way more bigger checks if I had done more work. <laughs> Fortunately, money is not my prime motivator, but I'm okay with it too. Yeah. I still have Mike's friendship and, uh, and I, I, I love I love the work that we did together and I'm really proud to have, be a part of the whole thing. Yeah. That's awesome. To whatever degree. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. I love it. Um, you gave us plenty of Kung Fu suggestions so we don't need to get more, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Don't in this talk situation. about Kung Fu <laughs> anymore, Josh. Uh, no, I loved it. I can't wait for you and Kate to start I'm really, Kung I'm, Fu Club. I'm on my like, letterbox like, adding movies to it right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> are you on Letterboxd? Yeah, yeah. Find yeah, me. Both find me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. I will find you. Yeah. You we'll, might we'll, we'll start Yeah, you might hate my reviews. No, no, no. No, no, no. There's no there's no such okay. thing. You can't I, lo you, I, I love I love reading hate. reviews that I disagree with because yes, that's the funnest. Exactly. It's exactly. like, yeah, I, I loved that. You hated it, or vice yeah. versa. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> the the thing what I love about Letterboxd is it's like um all the other social platforms, they feel like you're having like you have like if you have a disagreement, it's like a an existential crisis. Yeah. It's like political or something really important. If you if if one guy likes the Spice Girls movie and another person doesn't, right. there's no harm yeah. there. Yeah. No one's being harmed. Yeah. It's like, like oh, I, I, I can understand that. why you wouldn't like that. Yeah, yeah. No one, yeah. 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 <laughs> I love so that. Funny. Yes. Great. We'll find each yeah, other. That's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, good. You. Good. Be my friend. Yeah. Before you, we let you go. Um, yeah, I've held you captive. You wanna, for... Like, I swear, our listeners and our followers, where can they f follow you more to hear more from you and keep up with projects that are coming out? And you can just tell us about what's coming. What's yeah. news coming from? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. You, like, so uh, I do. I do have a, a Facebook account, and if that's where you are, I will occasionally go there to promote. But if you really want to like hang out and rap and stuff, I'm pretty. I'm way too active on Twitter, so uh, feel free to come and help me procrastinate from doing more work on Twitter. And then also, if you know, if if anyone out there has a Letterboxd account, come yeah. at me, man. I'm not I'm not judgmental. I love Letterbox, like I said. Um, I wish we had something like that for comics. That would be really totally really amazing. yeah. Well, that would be yeah. Cool. That's would a be great so idea. The, it, I know. I really wish somebody would yeah. do that. Uh, not me. Right. But those are the two places online that you can really find me. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll talk to anybody about anything. Man. Awesome. We're just people. And what's yeah. your handles on both? Oh, of those? Uh, I you'll uh, I think it's just Joshua. Yeah, Dyson. I found you I real just, quick right. on Letterbox. It's just oh, good, yeah. fantastic. And then what? When is oh, oh I have a YouTube channel, coming. but it's like a secret oh. YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Do you want to know? Secret. People. An exclusive. I make really. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I don't think I've ever promoted this. I I make really slow, long, meditative movies, mostly about my wife. And you That's can so see dirty. them at Machine Samba this. is the Machine name of the YouTube Samba. channel. Oh, I'm checking this out immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so boring. You have Odin's. Is Odin's Eye the next thing that's coming out from you? Okay, so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say it, but I do have a novella that I think is going to drop sooner, a horror novella. Sweet. Um, Great. But yeah. I love that. I'm going to talk about it. Well, uh, it's... um. I don't ha I can't give you a date yet, but I think it should be by the end of the year. It takes place in 1953 during the largest cicada emergence on record. Cool. So it's cicada exploitation <laughs> horror. So I hope you read it. It's called Brood 10, 
uh, I like to say Brood X. It's the Roman numeral cool. 10. It sounds cool, but people think it's an X-Men book when oh, I say yeah. that. So. <laughs> and then Odin's Eye uh, comes out in December. The first issue will be 72 pages long. Holy shit. Ooh, and it's it. so awesome because like we've discussed earlier, I hate not being given enough pages. You got that long page. <laughs> yes, I did. And, and each subsequent issue will come out every single week in December for the entirety oh. of December. That's, oh, that's five awesome. issues. The first one is 72 pages. The rest are 32 pages. And awesome. um, it's going to be a big old epic. And hopefully it won't be the last big old epic in this world that we created. The artist is Tomas Girello. He's a genius. And it is about a 6th century Geet girl who has a seizure disorder. And whenever she seizes, she believes that Odin is trying to tell her something. She convinces the local seer, or what would be, I guess, what we would call in modern parlance like a witch. Uh, but in pre-Germanic tribes, they were called vulvas. <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh hell yeah dude <laughs> exactly girl power exactly. <laughs> talking about spice girls and then yeah, uh, right. and, spice. yeah dude why not where did that yeah where did she yeah. go i want that spice but um yeah. but uh and and this seer she she convinces the chieftain to attach all the um community's greatest warriors to this tiny little girl and they go even further north to see if they can discover what Odin is asking of them. And it's awesome. it's going to be, uh, I'm really proud of it. It's beautiful. It's big. And even though I just gave you the pitch, it's nothing like what you think it's going to be. Cool. Some unexpected. Yeah, that's how I roll. All right. That's how I yeah. try to roll. I'm, a, yeah. I'm like, I'm itching just to immediately email secret headquarters and be like, can I get this reserved? <laughs> I've seen some of the art. The art looks awesome. Oh. Uh. Yeah. Have you guys seen, I d it, it, it was done with low grade TIFFs and I did it as the art for the first issue was coming in. And it's also not a super great cut because I did it really fast because I didn't have a lot of time. But have you seen the trailer for Odin's Eye that I cut together back in the day? No, no. Right, I'll, I gotta check I'll this email out. that to you and you guys yeah, can we'll love great. To see yeah, it. do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Oh, we'll share it. That's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll awesome. A lot of it. Cool. Awesome. Well, great. That's I'm looking forward to all of that. That's nice. wonderful. <laughs> all right. I um I just want to say thank you, Joshua, yeah. again, for man. spending two hours with us today and just talking about everything and being so candid about everything and your experience and your craft. I thank you so much. Oh man, I really appreciate <laughs> it. I like I said, I've really enjoyed like discovering your podcast and uh, uh and I just love the vibe you guys put out and I just dig it. So I really appreciate Thanks, getting to come on board. Yeah. Oh, Hell thank yeah. You. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. We'll see you on Letterbox. Yeah. yeah. Dude, We'll see you there. Be my friend. <laughs> Be my friend. <laughs> Bye. Nice to meet you. Nice Bye. to meet you. That was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I didn't want to say this while he was on. I will only say it to you and Beth, who's nearby in earshot. <laughs> Truly wanted to cry how how i wanted to just tear up because that went so well <laughs> i know so giving of his like like i don't know it's one of my highlights of this podcast i mean we have other highlights yeah, of too. other guests like ted stones and etc but that will truly be one of my highlights of all ever, i am to <laughs> totally in agreement because he's like on such an echelon like you know i feel like um like the other like obviously like Jonathan and stuff like they're such awesome artists and like self-publishing but like 
it's really, really cool to hear some guy who's like been in the industry for fucking 30 years or whatever, basically, and be so candid and like cool. Yeah. Just, like, just e- easy to talk to. Very easy to talk to, not shying away from like where he is in his life, uh, yeah. even in like his personal life and like views of the, the bigger world outside of comics and all that. Yeah. I hope, I hope a lot of people listen to this, uh, have listened to this because I think there's a lot in there. That's inspiring and rich to take away from. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, what a what a what a, I'm just so grateful. What a we treat. got him. We got him. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like because of your work with all of the like maintaining the Twitter and stuff like that. Like, thanks for doing that, or else he never would have seen it. Hey, I just do it because I like doing just this with you. Thanks for the work that you put into it. It's really great. Thank you for showing up and being part of this with me. Hell yeah. Um, hey, listeners, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. If there's anything you want to chime in on uh, from this episode, of course, any prior episode that we've covered of this season or future seasons, I think we're as this bonus episode is dropping, we are winding down. I think we have about two episodes left if I'm doing my calculations right for the, for the end of season five. And then we're going to take a long hiatus. We'll give you more details of that in future episodes, but we'd love to hear from you. So please email us your thoughts and anything you want to share with us at ah crap, a Hellboy podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can please follow us on Instagram at ah crap, a Hellboy podcast, Twitter, ah crap, Hellboy. We will do our darndest to reply to anything that you um, comment on or direct message us. Just be aware if you want your thoughts on the show, you got to email us at ah crap, a Hellboy podcast at gmail.com. And if you can't, please go out of your way to subscribe, rate, and review if that is an option on however you listen to us, whatever platform that is. But if you go out of your way to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and that review starts with the word boom, B-O-O-O-M, we will give you a big old shout-out, read your review right here on the show, and give you all the praise and just give you all the good vibes so we call that again a boom review please give us a boom review on apple Podcasts. but that's it i any other final thoughts kate with this great bonus episode and wonderful guests that we were lucky to have that's it time to go watch some kung fu movies yeah kung fu movies i can't wait to reserve odin's eye and get that novella in the future of his i can't wait everything i i really am gonna dig in during our hiatus that's coming up I was like, I can't wait just to dig into stuff that I haven't had the time to. So, and yeah. there will be a lot of uh, Dice Arts. I did realize I've read his Harbinger from the Valiant comics. I just didn't realize it was him at the time. So, oh, yeah. Good, <laughs> good reads, good reads in the Valiant comics world. That's it then for this episode. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week and for the, uh, the next episode. But again, once again, I'm going to be repetitive. Thank you for listening. And remember, we love you. Oh, are those your parents behind you? Those are my parents behind me. That's nice. Cuties. You know, they're nice. And my wife. Oh, in the photo, <laughs> not the plushies. Yeah, behind, yeah, up, yeah, yeah. On the top shelf. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) There's merch. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I'll buy merch of your parents. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I make merch of my my mom. I don't know if my dad. I'd be like, Dad, cha- let's have some let's have some heartfelt conversation about changing your views, and I'll make some merch for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
name is Will Himes, and I am a ghostwriter, meaning I write other people's books for them. And I have a podcast called I Will Write Your Book, which are recordings of my meetings with my eccentric clients, such as a woman blocked after one sentence of a children's book about her dogs, a romance novelist who dislikes sex, and a man proud of having sampled everything in his local grocery store. This podcast has been described as fully improvised, played by some of the best comedians on the planet Earth. Hey, that's pretty good. That's I Will Write Your Book on Campfire Media. Campfire.